You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. You have your Bible, you have your Bible with you. Um, I would invite you to open up to John chapter 1. And uh, as you guys have been with us, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, we've, um, we've taken the, 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 less, uh, the path less traveled by picking John as our Christmas story. So uh, as you guys remember, Matthew was the, the Jewish Christmas story with lots of lineage to let us know that Jesus wasn't the last minute gift idea. You know, like he was the promise from the beginning. Hey, like we've been talking about a, a coming Messiah that, that comes just how God said it would be. And Mark, Mark presents Jesus as the servant. So there's not a lot of background context or origin story. Luke is the, the cute one with all the, the shepherds and the nativity because he's, he's, he's a savior for every man, every walk of life. People that are lowly and people that are proud and people that are kings and people that are smart and astrologers and so forth, they're all coming to, to, to meet Jesus. But, um, but we're studying John and just looking at John chapter 1 and putting a bow really on, on the end of this passage um, today to remind us that, um, that the one that we come in the manger, we come to worship in the manger is, um, is not just, as Ricky Bobby says, a six-pound, uh, eight-ounce little uh, gurgly little baby, that he's God, that he's the I am, that he was in the beginning. Um, and so we'll, we'll kind of tie up with a bow and, and get into Luke on Christmas Eve. How many of you guys, uh, just by a show of hands, would count yourself somebody who enjoys surprises? Loves waking up in the day, not knowing what's going to happen. You get hit with something you don't know. That's about the best day that you could have. You literally have a, a hit list of people, of all the people that spoiled surprises for you. Do you have a list of these people? The people that told you what happened to the end of Hunger Games or whatever movie, the, the, the plot spoilers. You hate that because they ruined your surprise and you're still mad at them. You forgive them, but you're still a little bit, you don't trust them. Uh, The second group of people, raise your hand if you hate surprises. You go ahead and look at the end of the book before it starts. You go to the end of the series. You want to know what the spoiler is. You don't want to have a surprise birthday party. Uh, You're peeking for your presents. Stop doing that. Stop looking in the closets for the presents and looking at that. Surprises are good for us, even if we don't like them. All right, last category. Raise your hand if you're somebody that likes to give surprises, hates to get surprises. That's a fair category, right? I would love to trick somebody, prank somebody, punk somebody, but I do not want to be on the other end of that. I will host a surprise birthday party all day long, but do not show up with a bunch of extroversion when I'm not prepared for it. I do not like that. All of us are... You know, our attention is grabbed when there are surprises, when there are things that we didn't expect. It's just part of the human experience. We all show up to the baby gender uh, reveal party, and we're all kind of like surprised. This pink or blue powder that comes out of the balloon, and it just kind of defines the family and that nephew or niece that you're going to hang out with for Christmas is on end. Um, we all love to have something hidden and have it all of a sudden revealed. It kind of like answers the questions, uh, you know, the deeper questions. Like, like uh, even, even I kind of drive home from the party, and I think, Seeing whether or not the gender was what I thought teaches me whether or not I think I'm a good guesser or not. Uh, if, the, if the baby grows outwards or grows wideways or whatever, we can kind of take pride in whether or not we guessed right and whether or not we, we expected the surprise or not. There's something about surprises that give us a glimpse of, of some of the questions and the mysteries of life. Uh, back in the day, it's not anymore, but we used to all crowd around our televisions, I think, at least my friends did, to see what new Apple product would come out. Nowadays, there's just goggles where we're talking to robots. I don't even know what's happening. I don't even watch those things anymore. But there's something that draws us in about the suspense of the future, that the leading people and pioneers of technology are going to bring out something like the Wizard of Oz and unveil a thing and teach us about what our kids are going to grow up with. Whether we like it or not, we like the the suspense, the drawing in of, of seeing questions answers and seeing surprises revealed. And really, stories are themselves surprises. The reason why people listen to stories why if I start off a PowerPoint slide about World War II and give you 15 facts about World War II, but if I, I hand you a book from... Um, 
from Anne Frank, the diary of Anne Frank, and I say, once upon a time, I'm all of a sudden drawn into the suspense of a story because in some ways the story can help answer questions in my life as I put myself in the character's shoes. Maybe their happily ever after might lead me to my happily after ever after. The suspense of, of mysteries and surprises always draw us in if they're good or bad surprises because we live life with questions. I guess uh, psychologists say, you know, when you sit down with a therapist, like the big questions of life, like we're not always asking them on the tip of our tongues, but we're always thinking them. Like where, where am I from really? Like if I don't know who my dad is or, or um, I, uh, I'm defined in society by this certain thing because I'm poor, because I'm rich, because I come from this side of the tracks, like how much of my origin story can I believe? How much of my past can dictate my future? I want to know who I am. Uh, am, I, am I who my dad said I am? Is, is, are those words that he said about me, whether they were good or bad, or whether or not I succeeded in that game or made that SAT score, or whatever it is, like the, 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 the accolades of our life, like do they sum up to define who I am and what my identity is? These are the questions I think we all are asking whether or not we put them to our lips or not. Like what is the right way? Everybody has a vision for how we ought to do life and treat people, and are we supposed to live fast or live slow or live big or live small? Like everybody's grabbing the microphone for these questions. Like what are the answers for the good life and how I should live? And what's my, what's my purpose? Like am I just here to clock in and out? Is that really what it's going to be? Like live and pay taxes and die? Like is that all that there is to this? Is there a greater purpose to my life than just taking up space and just breathing? Like these are the questions. So um, I made a fatal flaw. I made lots of fatal flaws in ministry uh, in, in my tenure here at City Lights. But one of the biggest fatal flaws is I let uh, Daniel Kwok run the Christmas game uh, a couple years ago uh, at the Christmas party. Uh, this was this game where you're supposed to put mittens on, and we're all supposed to go around the table and roll the dice and open up a present that was, like, wrapped several times. Now it's the details that make the difference for these games. This is what you realize. If you get the wrong detail, you ruin the whole game. And one of my big details was letting Daniel Kwok wrap the presents. Daniel Kwok put y'all in some oven mitts, and here was the fatal flaw. Wrap those presents, which were like $5 below, you know, you know, five below $5 presents, which were super like anticlimactic when you finally opened them. But wrap the $5 presents in about 45 wrapping layers of wrapping tape. Like, he, I don't know if he had just too much time. And then not only had 45 layers of, of, of paper, but he wrapped it in packing tape. I was like, Daniel, are you trying to ruin it? There's kids like biting it with their teeth and just, it was awful. 45 wrapping papers, and, and so anyways, uh, no one got him open, uh, you know, we had to come around and give, give scissors. You know, the beauty, the beauty of Christmas, the beauty of John, we're reading in the Gospel of John, is, like, is, like, is that God is not wanting to hide himself, he wants to reveal himself. He's not buried himself into some mystery that only mystics get to, or you have to go up to the top of a mountain and meditate in Wusaw long enough to find him, like, he's right here in plain sight. In John, as the author kind of peels back the onions, he starts from the start. Like, you were not an accident. I don't care what your family line is or who you were born to. What's that? You were made by a God that loves you with a creative design in mind. You were knit in your mother's womb. You have, you have hairs that are counted on your head. You were made by God. In the beginning, there was a God, and he knew your name. He created you with a purpose. Secondly, that not only did he want you to know that you were created by him, but he wants to be known by you. That whether it's a deaf person or a person that you're trying to communicate with sign language or FaceTime, like, love will find a way to communicate. And, and John says that God's been talking. He's not been silent. He's always been talking. Even when we can't hear him, he's always been talking. And so the word began to speak and create and create an entire experience that you and I are experiencing at pace, at speed, to, 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 to discover and hopefully know and experience who God is, that he came and he created the light. The light is a metaphor, uh, which was created in day three, by the way, 
It was only after the original light, which is not photons, but truth, that God created truth and time and space from the beginning of time that, that he would communicate himself to speak to us. And he wasn't silent. Not only did he speak to us, but he sent witnesses. John. John was the last Old Testament witness, but we are all witnesses. All of, all of the martyrs and all of the camp counselors and all the teachers and the parents that were sent your way, you were surrounded by strands of human kindness. God has not left you alone. He sent people your way on purpose. Those people had an assignment, and they met that assignment in meeting you because God sent them. They didn't just accidentally land into your path. All of that to reveal this one critical truth that God came to be a man so that he might be known. There is a difference between writing a book report and reading something and knowing about something. There is a different category that if somebody comes to you as a second person and says, I met a celebrity, you met them by proxy. You met them in a sense of you kind of know what they like from an eyewitness, but God didn't come to be known about or known of. He came to be known. He came to dwell here, to live here, to know what your life is like and for you to know who he is. God became a man, and the only reason why we could possibly postulate that crazy claim is that he wants to be known in relationship. And so here's the critical question, right? That, we, that's, that has been the, the, the broad um, kind of message that I wanted us to think about in John 1. Like if he came here not just to sit in heaven but to come to earth, not just to visit and then pack his bags and go back up to heaven, but to sit here, dwell, and stay as a man, that it must be that he wants to be known and to be known by us and for us to know him. But here's the million-dollar question. Everybody can say they want to know Jesus or that they know Jesus, but how do you know Jesus? How do, you, how do you know somebody you've never seen? How do you know somebody that you, you haven't been able to talk to verbally or audibly necessarily for, 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 for many of us or maybe all of us? How do you know somebody that, that, you don't, that you've never met or that you've never seen, at least physically? And so um, I think actually that, um, that John gives us the answer to this question. For the God that has come so close but sometimes sees so far, beyond our liturgies, beyond just kind of singing louder sometimes to, to fake it till we make it. Um, beyond uh, attaching him to circumstances. He must love me. He must be close if everything's going well. Like a knownness and an intimacy beyond, beyond that, I think he gives us some coordinates, some actual longitude and latitude coordinates that I think actually teach us if we're willing to hear and to listen, to draw near to him and actually dwell with the one who came to dwell with us, to know Jesus. That's the question I want to ask. How can we know Jesus today? All right, so uh, verse 14, John chapter one says this. It says, the word became flesh, and made his dwelling among us. If you had a box in your attic and it, and it had a letter from a loved one that died, like it'd probably be the first thing you'd go and grab if there was a fire. And if there was pictures, you know, in that attic, you wouldn't want to lose those pictures. You wouldn't want them deleted off your phone. You'd probably be upset if that happened because those are the last living remnants of the things that you have of, of lost ones, of loved ones. But how many of you guys would know that like if there was a fire, you would, you would trade that box up, all the boxes of all the pictures and all the memories and all the letters if you could just have one day with them. If you could have one day with that person, that, that their presence would be, would be greater than the remembrances that you'd have in some stuffy attic or on your phone. To see the person, to know the person, that's what God came to do. Not just to give us a Bible, but to give us a person. The word became a person, and he didn't leave. He stayed. It is dwelling in this place. It says, we have seen his glory, the one and only son. Now, there's this lady downstairs in the McDonald's restaurant in my uh, college dormitory that... Um, she used to squint at me when I'd walk up to her because I had longer hair and kind of a scratchy beard back then, and, be, and she would call me the Asian Keanu Reeves. She'd kind of squint at me and be like, now if I open up my eyes wide, you don't look like Keanu Reeves, but just if I look the right way, you kind of resemble an Asian Keanu Reeves. So I take them when I can, you know, I take my compliments where I can get them. 
The apostle is saying that, that they're not squinting at God, that they saw him with eyes wide open. That they saw the face of God, to look into the eyes of the one that made us. That to look into Jesus is to look into God. That Jesus is not the PR spinner, the nice guy of the Trinity. He's not just a guy that proves that God exists, that he came and he stayed. And when he was here, he only did what the Father did. He did nothing apart from the Father. He did nothing in addition to the Father, subtracted from the Father. If you saw Jesus, you saw the Father. If you saw the Father, you saw the Jesus. You saw Jesus. You saw the Son. That he only said what the Father said. He only did what the Father did. He only spoke what the Father, or he only felt and thought what the Father thought. And so Jesus is the representation of God. Like if you see Jesus walking around, he never touched anybody and gave him cancer. Jesus is perfect theology. And so when we see Jesus do something, like if you want to know who God is, you look, look, at, look at Jesus. We live in a fallen and broken world. And until the already not yet, until the kingdom fully arrives on this earth, we are going to have sick people. But theologically speaking, you just cannot say that God gives people cancer to teach them lessons. Jesus touched no person to give them a sickness. He only sat here and healed. When you see Jesus walk around the street, tell me a verse, show me a passage where Jesus preaches to people to, to stop doing bad things and just follow the rules better. Jesus, Jesus believes in morality, he believes in ethics, he believes in righteousness, he came and walk and give righteousness. But the reason why Jesus didn't come down here and just tell a bunch of people to stop drinking and stop chewing and stop having sex, it's not that he doesn't believe in those things, he just doesn't believe that giving clarity on the rules is what, needs, what is necessary to save people. Jesus didn't come to be a policeman, he came to be a doctor and to touch and to heal. If he thought that giving people more clarity about what's right and wrong was going to save them, he'd probably be pretty great at it. But he didn't waste his time doing it because he didn't believe that sick people could make themselves well. He came to find sick people that knew that they were sick, and he touched them because he didn't come to, to do a rules ministry. He came to do a healing ministry, to touch people, to see people change from the inside out. And so he came, and he said, he only, and it says he only did what the Father did. He, he only worked in unison with the Father. And he, and he did the Father's business all the time. And, and when they met with him and they came back and they said, man, you met Steph Curry? Like, what was he like? Did he just have laser beams in his eyes? I mean, how tall is Steph Curry, you know? What's he like? Tell me the superlatives. There's not even a lot of superlatives, honestly, like that, that we talk about with, with regard to the personality of Jesus, the nature of Jesus. But two of them that apparently the apostle wants us to know, if you just got done meeting Jesus and you came back to try and explain what he is, I looked in his eyes and I'll tell you what I saw in the face of God. I saw the, I saw the grace of God and I saw the truth of God. If there's two things that you would see in the eyes, not squinting, but eyes wide open to see face-to-face with Jesus, the thing you would walk home and tell your mom about, you'd say, he's full of grace and he's full of truth. Have you guys ever noticed how it's easier to give grace to people that you don't know? Have you ever noticed that uh, your, your, your friend's dad is a lot, you know, his dad jokes are funnier than your dad jokes. You ever notice that? Like, like, like when your friend gets around your dad, they like laugh at your dad's joke and you're like, don't encourage him. Like if you start laughing at this, it's going to keep going. Right? You just know all of their quirks, all of their idiosyncrasies, and they drive you crazy. The more you know somebody, it's harder to extend grace. Yeah, you see these kids, they're super cute, aren't they? Aren't they cute? You like, you're like, maybe I should have a kid. You know, like, I love all these kids. You know who's not cute? The kid that's living in your house. They wake up, they're just drinking Kool-Aid at 6 in the morning ready to take you out, you know? It's just easier. It's just easier to express grace, to express kindness, to express favor for people that you don't know, right? Because, because truth is sometimes hard to practice with grace, and grace is hard to practice with truth. Well, the truth of the matter is, is that that's not an accident. Attention exists for a reason because truth and grace are actually not just at odds with each other. The truth of, of, of truth and grace within a fallen and broken world is that truth is not just at odds. It's actually an oxymoron of grace. The more I know of you and the more you know of me, the harder it is for me to like you, and for you to like me. It is hard to give grace 
to a sex offender. It is hard to give grace to somebody that continually goes back to their own vomit. It is hard to give grace to somebody that just took the grace that you gave them yesterday and abused it and used it against you. It's hard to give grace because the more you know about somebody, it's an oxy- grace just like ceases to become grace because it's no longer helpful because it's just permission now and entitlement to walk all over people that you should be loving. The more I know about you, the harder it is to practice grace because they're not just at odds. They're like, they're like fire and water. They're like hot and cold. They're, they're, they're extreme polar opposites in a fallen world. You can't practice truth without sacrificing to some degree grace, and you can't practice grace without some degree um, sacrificing truth. And so we do kind of like this weird counterfeit Walmart version of truth and grace, if you know what I mean, that we have, we have grace quotas. Like, I have grace for you up until this number, but once I hit that number, I don't know when it is, but once I hit it, I'm done. We have grace with quotas. We have grace with limits. Human beings, they have grace with lists. Like, I can have grace for that kind of sin, but I, I can't have grace for that kind of sin. How could I possibly have uh, uh, grace for a sin so heinous? That would be to neglect truth if I accepted you on those grounds because, because these things can't reconcile each other. We have a kind of contract grace with our spouses. Like, if I don't call out your skeletons, you just don't call out mine. <laughs> and we hold these other hostage of this kind of contract-level grace and truth. We have a, uh, I'm, I'm going to be a bigger person kind of grace, where I'm just going to be the bigger person, and I'm going to keep shoving it down and sweeping it under the rug until I blow up. Because the, it can only go so far that you give grace and grace and grace, and you just explode because truth needs to be present. We give little penalties to help to coordinate people, or we just say it's all one big happy mess. Ha, ha, ha we're all just uh, frolicking around, and nothing really matters. We have to have hippie grace or whatever. Or that grace that just says, yeah, grace is the thing that just lets me get forgiven on Saturday and sing on Sunday and forgiven on Saturday and get, sing on Sunday and never see grace as a, as a powerful change agent. We have these different Walmart false hypocritical places of grace. But that's because truth and grace, like, they're not just tensions. They are opposites. Like, truth, if it's unhidden reality, and grace, which is unmerited favor, if those two things got in a room, they wouldn't be able to get along together because the more I know about the reality of you and me, the less it's possible for me to like you. That's what grace means. It doesn't just mean love and put up with. It means to actually cherish you. And one of those has to go. One of them has to divorce. But the Bible says that Jesus was not just a little bit of grace and a little bit of truth. The Bible says Jesus was full of grace. That he was full of truth. Not compromised. Not cooperated. Like he was 100% grace and 100% truth. Not 50-50, not 30-70, not 60-40. Not on Monday or Wednesday. He was Monday, Wednesday, Tuesday, 365 100% grace and 100% truth. How does he do it? How does he do it without levels, without balancing good cop and bad cop, or Monday versus Tuesday, or or, or I'll be the truth guy in my marriage and my family and my wife will be be the grace person. Like, How do you actually embody in one person the fullness of grace and truth without levels, without limits, without lists? The answer is that Jesus had to pay for grace and truth. At the cross, what has happened on Calvary is, is grace has kissed truth and truth has kissed grace to be united into one person And grace has now become truth. The truth of you is that you have grace. And what's graced in you is that you have the truth. And those two things will never live in separation. They will never fight custody battles over the church. They are one person. They are bodied in one person at one cross. Grace and truth are possible in Jesus because he paid for it. That when you and I come and and the light shines on us and the ugly parts of us shine on us, because of the authority of Jesus, because of what God has accomplished on the cross backwards and forwards, What Jesus has accomplished on the cross means that anything that I've done that falls short of the glory of God is only things that God has paid for. 
that each one of the things that come up out of me when I'm squeezed, when I'm not acting my best, when I'm hungry, angry, lonely, and tired, every one of these words that comes out of my mouth and out of my body and out of my actions, these are just trophies of things that God paid for. It's a moment to draw close to them that both the truth and the grace tell the same story. He paid for that. That when you and me do life and you see me not just sin, but seven times, 77 times, like it's not just like, oh, I'm going to let him off the hook and now the story ends happily. No, like until I die, I keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. Isn't that just sloppy grace? Isn't that just hyper grace? No, whatever it is that comes out of me, because the cross, backwards and forwards, all of that, he has power, he's using all of that. Each of those moments are moments that he's using to transform me from one grace and one glory to the next to transform me into the intimacy of Jesus. You and I have no chance, you and I, to have any sort of relationship, any sort of intimacy. We're either going to have a false grace or a false truth. But the only place you and me can have intimacy is in the power of the cross. Wives in the room, I'd say this a lot when we do weddings. Following a guy that doesn't look like Christ is pretty hard business. (laughs) But the commandment here is not submit to your husband like to whatever he says. The commandment is, is to trust not in your husband's reputation, but the trust in the spirit that God put in your husband. What you're actually trusting is not his reputation or his track record. You're trusting the promise that he has over his life. So how can I actually love my husband with both grace and with truth? It's not about because I'm nicer to him and because I'm meaning to him or because I, I tell him what I really think or I don't tell him. No, all of that's negotiable. All of that's just about wisdom. But the thing that we can't let go of as we follow people sometimes that don't look like Jesus is that we're not trusting the reputation of their track record. We're trusting Christ's work on their behalf. And I'm believing, I'm believing that the grace and truth, power and authority are working in my husband and my wife's or family or friends or whoever else's life to lead me to the place that we're supposed to be going in Christ Jesus because because grace and truth have become a person in Jesus. So John 15 says, you know, John, uh, he testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. God just didn't sit up in the stars. He talked. And when he talked, he didn't just talk through the spiritual language, but through human language. None of us are self-made men. None of us have testimonies without the testimonies of others. Like we stand on the floor that missionaries brought to us. And so we are thankful for witnesses and we are witnesses. and, and, And we're just reminded like the ministry of witnessing started with John, but it doesn't stop. I don't know if you've been like me. Sometimes you'll go 17 pictures in and actually like somebody's picture. You know what I mean? Like like somebody's pictures at 2 in the morning. That's not a good look, guys. Okay? Have you guys, you know this, right? Everybody's watching everybody. You don't know the people that have touched you. You don't know the people that you've touched. I made a list right here. I don't have time to go into my testimony of all the people that God has used as strands of human kindness to witness to me who Jesus is. Half of them, I never told them. Half of the people that you've witnessed to, you don't even know, but they're watching you. They're all watching you. We're all watching one another. And Jesus is being witnessed because he wants to be known. He wants to be known. And so verse 16 says, out of his fullness we have all received grace in the place of grace. I love that verse. Out of his fullness, the expression of Jesus is truth and grace, but the experience of the believer is actually grace and grace. It's actually not truth and grace. It's actually grace and grace. Can we all admit here, if you're a parent, the experience of being a kid at Christmas is way different than the experience of being an adult. I want to basically go back into my kid's life and give them one message. Just stay here as long as you possibly can. It only gets worse, worse than this. Kids have, kids have three days on their calendar. They have yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Your kids have not thought about your aunt, their uncle, what present, what size underwear people wear. They're not thinking about anything. Your kids are literally waking up and thinking about cookies. That's all that they're doing, okay? And somehow throwing a fit about that. I don't even know like, how I even deal with these little people anymore, okay? 
None of this is, uh, is, 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 is microscope. None of this is exaggerated more than the dad car trip. Can we just all admit that, uh, that, that riding in the car with dad was so much easier than being the dad and driving the car? I, I don't know how I get so tired than going straight. How do I get tired by going straight? I sit there, I push on the little pedal, and I'm exhausted. I just can't even stay awake driving straight, you know? And so, you know, the kids, they have lots of different options. They can sing along. They can play 20 questions. They have an iPad these days. Good grief. They can watch any movie that they want, and they're still fussing about it. And all I want is just to sneak my hand back there and get a little dad tax. Just put the M&Ms in my hand. That's all I ask for when I put my hand back there. Whatever I put, just put something in there for the, for the old man because I'm driving. And probably the best thing that you could do if you could go back in time, just go to sleep. I just want to give them a little tranquilizer just, and just let them go to sleep. This is what we're all fighting for. We all know where we're headed. Literally, if you are a kid and you have a dad and you're riding in the car, you can go to sleep in South Carolina and wake up in Indiana. Why are you not partaking in this? This is a fantastic arrangement. You could just sleep there. You know, it'd be fantastic. A lot of times when we think about grace upon grace and how grace interacts with our life and how do I measure truth and grace, I try to get a little spreadsheet out and balance it out like a seesaw. I give a little bit of grace to my wife this week, so I think it's some time for some truth. Like, you know, we have this little, like, engineer mind about grace, and it gets confusing about grace and truth. A lot of times I think when you listen to what we're talking about when we're talking, I think we, we, we tend to think about grace like it's a couch more than it's a car. We think about grace like it's just the thing, like, oh, I'll just keep on doing whatever I want to do because God forgives me. And, like, I can't walk in righteousness. I mean, that's just what we're supposed to be doing in life is figuring out that you're a sinner and just keep on sinning because that's what God loves you to do to show how much he loves you. I mean, that's literally the thought process back in Romans chapter 5 or 6 or whatever that is, right? That's the idea is that just, just using grace to abuse it. Grace is, grace is for sure forgiving. Grace will forgive us seven times, 77 times. But if, but if the, the, the exact application of grace is just do whatever you want on Saturday so you can just show up and be forgiven on Sunday, I think we're missing a lot of what grace has to offer. Grace is not a couch. Grace is a car. Grace is, grace is, grace is the, the, the girlfriend that broke up to you, that broke up with you, that would have led you the wrong way. Grace is that pastor that fell out that taught you the danger of, of thinking that your britches are too big. Grace is the big moment at the altar when God saw, when you saw your sin altogether for the first time. Grace is that, that guy that's holding you accountable. Grace is the suffering that you're enduring as you're choosing into fasting. Grace is, the, grace is the hard work that you have to keep on going when you don't feel like it. Grace is all sorts of things. It's high things and low things and hard things and easy things, but grace is, grace is so much more than just a, a nice, cuddly Jesus that I can put into a box. Grace is the actual car that brings me from spiritual death all the way to spiritual life. It's to bring me to the destination of being with Jesus and like Jesus and for Jesus. And so the true experience of a Christian is not truth and grace with Jesus so much as it is that everything that we experience is grace. It's all a big gift. I remember um, back in the early O's, there was this show called Punked uh, with Ashton Kutcher where they would just punk all these celebrities. And I remember one time Justin Timberlake started crying because they broke all of these guitars and they thought it was his. He literally sat in this trailer, Justin Timberlake, and called his mom and cried on the phone over these guitars getting broken. And there's this big moment where they pull all the people they punked into the into the trailer, and they all laugh at each other. And, the, and, you know, the way that they were getting sabotaged, the way that we were getting pranked, you know, is so much funnier when you're in on the joke and not when you're in the middle of it, I suppose. But I really do think we're all going to go to the trailer, you know, in heaven one day, and we're going to laugh at all the ways we thought we earned God's approval. We're going to laugh at all the ways that we thought we cleaned it up. We're going to laugh at all the ways that we thought we could balance the spreadsheet. Like, the experience here is not me getting it sometimes and then not getting on bad times, and so he gives me the grace for the bad times, but I do it on my own in the good times. No, it's all grace. It's all him giving and none of me earning. 
And so the cutest thing I think that we say is, you know what, Pastor? Like, I think I figured out grace because I read a book about it. I think that God chuckles at that so loud. Because <laughs> I think that we never get it. This is all one big sabotage. This is all one big prank. And he's using all sorts of things, the hard times, the good times, the times that it feels like he's talking when he's actually being quiet, the times that you think he's being quiet when he's actually talking. He's using all of these times because it's, it's not truth, plus it's all grace to the believer because all of it is a gift. And we're just in the car. The best thing we could do is just fall asleep and take a nap and we'd end up in the destination. We are sleeping in the car. Grace is not a couch. It's a car. It's a vehicle. It is God's grip on your life and is insistent on sabotaging you, on catching you at every corner, just when you think you've outstretched his arm, just when you outstretched his grace, just when you think that you put him in a box and figured out the only ways that he works and the only people that he talks through and the only preferred methods and vehicles that he uses in your life, he just breaks the mold again and shows you exactly how big his grace is, that it's grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. So verse 17 says, For the law has given, was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I have time to get into it, but there's, it's like my dad used to run at the track, so you would, you would wait to tell him something when he'd go around twice, right? So John is, is like, he's walked around the track, and the first time around the track, he, he talks about Genesis, and he's explaining how Jesus was relating to in the beginning and the light and, and the seven-day creation. He's doing new creation, but the second lap, he's preaching Exodus. He's talking about the tabernacle and the commands and the law and, and, and the witness and all of these types of things. It's going around two times, and, and, and basically it highlights the c- comparison between Genesis and Exodus, because in Genesis, he's, he's preaching about how God had ten words. God had ten blessings that he spoke on the earth, and all of them came to be, and he called it good, and so the first creation was created by ten words. But then the second time around, he's going on, he's talking about Moses' ten words, the ten, the ten words of the command, the ten word of, uh, words of the law. And the great, the great plot twist is that God gave the first words to create the world, and he gave the second ten words to, to create the law, but the law actually wasn't created for us to, to get us to follow it. It's created to show us that we couldn't follow it. And so it's basically an equation of showing you in Genesis, this is what God did without man. Like, remember, the reason why we Sabbath and sleep eight hours a night is to remember the world doesn't revolve around us. It's so good to remember what God did without man. And then also to remind us, sometimes you have to have the, remember, remind us of the absence of God, right, in the law, to remember the presence of Jesus. Remember what happened when you tried to follow God's law without God. Remember what, what you did with your words minus God. Remember what God did with his words minus you. Remember what you did with, his, with, with your words minus him. And so he's, he, he's, he's consolidated all of, the, all of the words, all of the, I mean, if you had a, I mean, remember back in eighth grade, you had a girlfriend, you like write all these notes and stuff them in all these lockers, like all of the words, all the witnesses, all the, all the podcasts and all the preachers and all the sermons you've ever listened to, all the words, they don't even express, they can't even add up to this one single word, to Jesus. To Jesus has come as a person, not as a word, not as a concept, not as a doctrine, not as a paradigm. Grace and truth has come to us in the person of Jesus. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but I'll tell you what, if you've seen the Son, you've seen God that we've, we've looked into his eyes and we've seen God for who he really is. If you've seen the son, you've seen the father, he's not leaving any of that out. Who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the father, he has made him known. So this is a Bible project video or a picture. Um, you might go home and watch the entire one in John 1. I think, think it's awesome. It shows the parallel construction between uh, incarnation and witness and choice. But I just love the, the two parallel pictures from the beginning that God starts with a scroll and then ends with a son. He starts with a, a list, uh, a, a, a word of agenda, 
um, a speaking and creating a kingdom, but he, he didn't just create the kingdom to be vacant of it, to be a deist, to separate himself, but he came into the world and he, he turned his words into a son. And look at the very bottom, that NASB translation I love. It says, the one who deeply knows the Father is sitting in his lap. That God came to bring us to the Father's lap. If this is not our gospel, if this is not the point of the gospel, not just to read good, heady books and doctrine or have behavior modification or, or have some understanding about where we go when we die, but to know the Father and to know Jesus is the purpose of this scripture and the purpose of this moment that God wants to speak to us. That God wants to be known. We come right back to the original intent, I think, of what I think John tells us to invite us to is, is to know, do you know Jesus? There's a way you can know about World War II, but you didn't live in World War II. To know about the doctrines of Jesus and the doctrine of grace and the doctrine of sanctification and soteriology, you know all the books. And Jesus says one of the most profound and harrowing statements, there are people with masters in divinity that don't know Jesus, that search the scripture and miss Jesus. Very common. That have a lot of witnesses, John the Baptist and Aunt Peggy and your grandma and your spouse all the people around you that you spend time with witnesses and you think you might be a witness because you are around witnesses, it's not the same thing. Knowing about something, knowing of something, is not the same thing as knowing someone, to dwell with the one who's dwelled with us. So here we are. That's the million-dollar question. Like, we all get the concept. We all ache for it. It's the reason we, we, we watch Lost and This Is Us and 40 hours of TV, you know, like these drama plots. We want to know the answers to our questions. Are we really made by someone? Do we really belong to somebody? Are we really made for something? Do we really know someone? Are we, are we created in an image? And, 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 and if we can preach that is one thing, but can we live that? How do, you, how do you get to know Jesus? How do you draw close to Jesus when he feels far away? I'm directionally challenged. I just check all the maps these days. I put on GPS just to make sure that I arrive on time, and, um, and I want to just see if there's police officers on my route just to make sure I can pray for them. Uh, and, uh, and, and, I, and I also see if I can beat that, the, you guys ever race, that race the, the little timer on there to see if you can beat the timer by prayer and not by speeding. Um, you know, I, I don't go anywhere without the G, GPS. You know, what if you had coordinates? What if you had, what if, what, you know, if, if I told you to go down Pleasantburg and I told somebody else to go down East North Street and I said, let's meet at East North Street in Pleasantburg. If you had a longitude and you had a latitude, you could find a location. You could be there even without a GPS. Like, what is the coordinates? to find Jesus and be close when he feels far away. Matthew 18, verse 19 says this, Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything, Jesus says, if two or more agree about anything and they ask for it, it will be done in uh, my Father's name. It will be done by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. How many of you guys have ever heard this, this verse before? Have you heard that verse before? You know where you always hear this verse? Where do you always hear this verse? Can I tell you? This is where you hear it. It's when you show up to the prayer meeting, and there should have been 30 people that showed up to the prayer meeting, but everybody had COVID somehow. They all got COVID at the same time. And so you're looking at everybody, and there should have been 30, but there's three people. And you say to yourself, well, that's okay, because if there's more than two, then God's with us. Amen. Isn't that how you do it? That's every single prayer meeting. If you don't have an MDiv, that's about second... This is about the second best that you could have. That's a great line to have when you have a prayer meeting. Hey, brother, two or more gathered. God must be with us. Okay. So the context, though, keep in mind the context. The context of Matthew 18, some of you guys that have been in this scripture before and lived this scripture before, it's hard to pre easy to preach, hard to live. So Matthew 18 is not strictly about prayer. It's actually about sin. That Jesus says, 
that in this world, we're going to have brokenness, shrapnel, truth without grace, grace without truth. We're going to have ugliness, bitterness. We're going to find out more things about each other this year that are going to make each other harder to like. Easier to fake like we like each other, but harder to really have favor on each other. That the, that, the, that the world and the flesh and the enemy is going to come up against this church. And he says, so what you're going to need to do that's different than what you want to do is stop talking about them and go talk to them. That's super hard. I mean, that's, that almost makes me think that's probably where Jesus... Jesus is never complicated and easy. He's always very simple but very hard. <laughs> right? To go, why, why is it everybody wants to be close to Jesus but... We often find, oftentimes feel far from him. It's not because he's complicated and, uh, and, uh, and, and, and easy. It's that he's simple and, and, and too difficult. So he says, go to the person. Don't talk about the person. And go to win them and not the argument. Go fight for the relationship. Don't fight the person. And if there's just too much temptation and too much collateral and too much things pulling at you, go get somebody to come with you, but make sure they're not on your side. Make sure they're neutral. Go bring somebody into it to fight for the relationship, not fight for the victory, not to fight for the right and the wrong. And then pray. Pray to God that you guys will end up agreeing. Because at the end of that day, it'd be worth it. Even if it rejects, it'd still be worth the risk of trying to get it to be accepted. Because at the end of the day, if two people that have sinned against each other can find a way to reconcile each other around the cross and the gospel of Jesus, they will never experience more intimacy with Jesus than working through sin with others. You'll never experience more intimacy with Jesus than meeting your brother at the cross. Then reconciling two people that would be irreconcilable other than the gospel to meet that person at the cross and find out of two people that were, indiv- that were divisible to find agreement, you will never find more closeness and proximity to Jesus than meeting that person at the cross, at the place of grace and truth. And so I think if there's two coordinates, like if there's a Pleasantburg and East North Street, I think the two coordinates God would give us if we had little, little hints, little tips of, of warmer, 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 hot, hot, red hot, it'd be to follow the thread of grace and follow the, the truth of Jesus until we come to a, to a clash that can only be solved by the cross. To meet with others at the cross is the place to find Jesus. What is it? Uh, Le Mez, the Victor Hugo quote, it's kind of humanist. It just says to love another person is to see the face of God. I'd probably one-up that with John 1 by saying this. Probably the, the most concentrated place that you'll ever experience the kingdom of heaven in this, in this earth is to forgive another person. To forgive another person in Jesus is probably the closest to God will ever be. To find truth and walk that truth all the way down to the cross. To find that grace, which isn't really grace, it's just hypocrisy. It's just being nice and shoving it into, under the carpet to walk that towards truth until it meets the cross. At the place where grace meets truth and truth meets grace is probably the place we're going to find Jesus. It's probably the place where two or more are gathered agreeing in my name, not just at the prayer meeting, but in our living rooms with our spouses, with the sins that we just can't forgive again. It's at that place, the hard places of life sometimes, where we meet Jesus face to face to really see him for who he is. So that's my question. He's dwelling with us. But the question is, will we dwell with him? And John, the apostle, has seen him face-to-face, not Keanu Reeves, but Jesus, the real Jesus face-to-face. And he's spoken to us, like, what's he like? He's full of grace, and he's full of truth. And we might meet him by following those threads in in our life. So here's my intentional question today. If we do want to be known by him, if we want to come and dwell with him and to be near him, I think we we would look no further than to follow the thread of grace. Where are we experiencing grace and truth? 
Where are we experiencing grace without truth? Truth of the matter is, it's like, you're not telling them the truth because you don't think the relationship could bear up underneath it. And that's probably true. So you're settling for a, a false, fake version of relationship, calling it grace, but it's really just hypocrisy. And not experiencing real intimacy. And the scripture is telling us that there's, there's just no way that I can balance sheet this equation out, equation out to find intimacy with God and man. I just have to trust Jesus. I just have to believe I'm in the car. And that he's going to get us to where we need to go. And so as he leads us to, to, to match grace with truth, to bring truth into, into relationships, that's where we might find him. Where are you experiencing, you know, I don't know if it's Andy Stanley or somebody who says that truth without grace is brutality. Truth without grace is hurt. And honestly, truth without grace isn't truth anymore because the tomb is empty. So truth is grace now. So just giving people facts and hitting them with the rules is not truth anymore because the tomb has changed reality to say that any amount of real truth is going to lead us to Jesus and Jesus brings grace. Grace upon grace upon grace. And so where is it that I can trust that the real truth of Jesus is that he's getting all in this car and he's going to use Ugly conversations and seven-year conversations and you trying again to forgive them and turn the other cheek. He's using all of these situations to get us in that car because once we're in the car, we will arrive at the des- destination. That he, he doesn't start something that he doesn't finish and he's driving, he's driving our promise to get to where he promised he would get us to go, which is the place of grace and truth. Together. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.